Well, believe it or not, we're going to go back to the book of James. It's been since, I believe, like 21st of December or November since we were there. So I'm going to just do a little bit of review first as we bring us back to where we're at. Now, the book of James, most historians believe that the book of James was written by the half-brother of Jesus. For some of you that may have been taught that Jesus didn't have any brothers or sisters, that may come as a surprise. But Jesus has brothers, we know the names of a few, like four of them, I think. He has sisters that we don't know the names of. And of course, they would be half-brothers, half-sisters. And James was really, like the rest of his family, a little bit slow in catching on to who Jesus really was. But after Jesus' death and resurrection and appearance to the disciples, James became an important leader in the Jerusalem church. And I just want us to think about that for a second, because Jerusalem is the Jewish center, where the temple is, where the temple was. And James is leading this new church, this new Christian church in Jerusalem. And if you read through the book of James, and you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you'll realize the book of James is about the most Jewish book in the New Testament. And it helps us to understand that he is writing this to the Jewish Christians right in Jerusalem. The main theme, if you might recall, was on maturing in Christ and living a life of greater holiness to the glory of God. You know, getting saved is it's everything. But yet, we aren't to stop there. You know, until we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, the Bible is really clear. We are separated from God, and we are going to spend eternity separated from God in hell. So yes, accepting Christ is everything, but he does not want us to remain those baby Christians. Once we we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are now called ambassadors for Christ. We are to represent Christ wherever we go, whatever it is we do. And to be good ambassadors, we need to know him really well. We need to have an intimate relationship with Him. We need to grow in the likeness of Him. And most of us, most of us, if not all of us, the moment of our salvation, the moment the Holy Spirit moves in and indwells us, we still carry a whole lot of garbage. And that garbage can get in the way of our witness and testimony. I know I certainly did, and it certainly did in my life. But we are continually encouraged in the Word of God, and we have the greatest teacher that ever existed in the Holy Spirit living in us. We have the Word of God, the very words of God given to us, and we're to, to, to read them, to study them, to grow in knowledge and understanding and wisdom all by the grace of God. And as we do that, we become more like Christ. So James is writing this letter, and if you keep this main thought in mind, he's trying to encourage the new believers And he's trying to encourage us that we are to mature in our relationship with Christ. That we would become greater ambassadors. That we would become more effective in advancing the kingdom of God here on earth. All to bring glory to God. That's our goal. That's his goal. To bring glory to God through you and me. So to live and grow in our maturity means that we also are going to be coming and living a more holy lifestyle. We're not going to reach perfection in this life. That's a given. But we should be moving forward every day. And as we went through the first 
few chapters of the book, and there's only five chapters in the book of James, so if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to do that. Lord willing, we'll probably finish next week, but we'll see. But he starts out by challenging us and encouraging us. I'm going to just read a couple of verses, starting in James chapter 1, and these won't be on the overhead. He said in James chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So we're, we're right out of the chute with James. He's saying, you know what? There's going to be tests and trials for Christians. But he makes clear a few verses later in verses 13 and 14 that when we are tested by God or even tempted by God, we need to understand, well, verse 13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself doesn't tempt anyone. The temptation there that's being referred to is God will never tempt us with evil towards sin, ever. We will be tested, or you can use the word tempted if you want, but it's always to build our maturity, to grow us, to, 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 for God to give opportunity over and over and over to show us He's God, and we can trust in Him, and we can believe in Him. And then he goes on, and, and he talks about, in chapter 1, about this whole, I, I, I use the example, or the, the metaphor, a birthing process. First thing is lust. And once we pay attention to that lust, all of a sudden, sin is conceived. And as it grows and matures, it ultimately gives birth to a really ugly child called death. And he's warning us and cautioning us it doesn't have to take place in our lives. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given the Word of God. And he challenges us to to receive the Word and respond to the Word of God. In verses 21 and 22, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is enabled to save your souls. And then he goes and says right after that verse, but prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers of the word. We need to walk it out. And he goes into a teaching on faith and works. Faith without works is dead. We even talked about where he's referenced to to Abraham and he says he was justified by his works, which can be confusing because we were justified by Christ's death. That's where a little bit more study is required because when you study justified, that word has two meanings. One, we are justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And when we accept that gift, we are justified. Our sins are dealt with. But it uses it following that when he says we're justified by works. It's like the works prove it. The works show it. In other words, my justification by Christ's death and resurrection is represented and shown and justified by my works. Works don't save anybody. Works don't save anybody. And he goes on and talks about the prejudice test as, as Christians. We're not to judge our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not to show favorites. It's so easy in our culture, in our world, to to judge people according to a whole bunch of things that God says, don't do that. Don't judge them by their appearance. Don't judge them by the car they drive, the house they live in, the clothes they wear, the money in the bank. Don't do that. He says we should be unprejudiced. The royal law to love. And he stresses it. And then he goes into that really challenging test about the tongue this ugly fire that's in our mouth. And a matter of fact, he goes so far as to say, 
this thing in our mouth called our tongue, no one can control it in the natural. Anybody want to argue with that one? Man, my tongue, your tongue. But by the grace of God, it's impossible for you and me in our flesh, but by the grace of God, the grace of God can override that power in the tongue to speak evil because the grace of God is this unbelievable power in our lives. And he goes on and talks about reading, receiving the word and allowing it to transform us, which changes everything. It changes the, the, the works that we do. It changes the way we relate to people. It changes everything. To receive it and respond to it and allow it to change our approach to life, the way we live our lives. If you're not living your life differently than you were before you got saved, there's something wrong. First thing, maybe you didn't get saved. But once we are saved, we need to continue to press in and pursue the truth and let the Holy Spirit bring us into more and more of a maturity. And then the last thing that we talked about the last sermon way back in November was earthly wisdom versus heavenly wisdom. And there's a couple of scriptures I just want to read in, in chapter uh, 3, verse 13, 14, somewhere in there. He says this, verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. Ugly wisdom. He says, for where there's jealousy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil thing. Earthly wisdom leads to chaos. Earthly wisdom. Earthly wisdom. Look at where God is removed from any entity, whether it be a nation or an organization, whatever. Chaos will ensue. I don't care how wise in an earthly sense they are. It will fall apart. And ultimately it will burn. But then there's heavenly wisdom. He says heavenly wisdom, but the wisdom from above, pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And that brings us up to chapter 4 where it's like James is going to go back and talk about that earthly wisdom thing and it's causing all kinds of chaos. And remember, he is writing to believers. So the, the, the title of my message today is simply is a war to be won. There is a war that we are to win. Christ has already won the war, but there's still this battle going on and we call it a war, we might call it a war, in Scripture, it uses the picture of a war going on within me. And Paul or James is going to address that war, and he's going to address the source of that war, and he's going to give us some really practical ways to, to overcome it, to win that battle. But before I get into that, I want, to, I want to put a picture up on the screen of a beautiful, sweet little baby. Isn't that great? Now I'm going to read a quote to you about every baby. Every baby starts life as a little savage. Don't throw things yet. It gets worse. That's why I'm not using a live baby. <laughs> he is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. He wants his bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, and his uncle's watch. 
deny him this once, and he sees with rage and ang- aggressiveness that would be murderous were he not so helpless. He is dirty, he has no morals, he has no knowledge, and he has no skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of his infancy, given free reign to his impulsive actions to satisfy his own wants, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, or a rapist. How does that make you feel? (laughs) Makes you want to have children, right? Scary stuff. Where'd that quote come from? Well, listen to this. This is where that report comes from. In 1926, the state of Minnesota was doing a study to figure out why the rate of crime was going up in the state of Minnesota. And this is the conclusion they came to. It wasn't written by a church or a bunch of religious zealots. It was written from a study of the state of Minnesota in 1926. When I look at that, if I can remove the emotion of that cute little baby, I'm thinking, there it is. There's the state of fallen man. Left to our own devices. We are just evil. You know, there's nothing good in us of everlasting, of eternal value or worth whatsoever. When you look at that or you listen to what I said, do you think it's wrong? Does it sound like it's biased? Or does it sound like, yeah, that could be the state of mankind? And we get a picture of it in that sweet, innocent little baby. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve. The sin of Satan, way back in the beginning. The human condition. Sinners are at war with themselves. And this is what James starts to address in James chapter 4, verse 1. It says in James chapter 4, verse 1, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Now that word desires there, in some of us, our translation might say pleasures, and some of it it might actually say lusts. But that's one of the words for lust. Where does all of this fighting and quarreling come from, even amongst believers? Desires that battle within If you go back and read Romans 7, you remember Paul struggled with this. Those things I want to do, I don't do. The things I do, I don't want to do. There's this battle going on inside, and we can probably all relate to that. And this is what James is addressing. He says, there's an answer. I can tell you where the source of those quarrels are. I can tell you where the source of all those fights and battles are. It comes from the desires within you and me. Now, I'd rather blame Satan. And I guess in a general, broad sense, we could always say everything good's from God and everything evil's from Satan. But here, James isn't saying it's that doggone devil. He's saying it's that stuff in your heart that's evil, that's sinful. It's that old, old nature that's there. And he proposes that there's a way to deal with it. In other words, he's looking at this and saying instead of blaming an outside source, It's within us, and it's this root of selfish pride that's so deeply rooted in fallen man. Selfish pride. What are the symptoms of selfish pride? Now, we could all probably start really quick pointing about that symptoms of selfish pride in somebody sitting next to you or down the rowways or on the other side of the building. 
But we don't necessarily see it in ourselves because we aren't selfish and we aren't prideful. And James would say, that's not true. Hogwash. We are. When we look at pride, we need to understand that pride is a sickness that you usually or oftentimes don't feel bad with right away. Matter of fact, it's a disease that in the early stages it feels kind of good. Makes us feel good about ourselves. And when we start feeding our selfish pride, there's all kinds of good feelings that come with those things that we desire and want, at least for a short season. And that's the nature of sin. You know, sin doesn't come dressed ugly, it comes dressed up pretty nice. Until you discover what's really under that outer garment that's deceiving us. If we leave that selfish pride unchecked in our life, it will destroy you and me and everything that we hold dear. It will destroy our families. It will destroy our marriages. It will destroy our relationships. It will destroy our finances. It will just keep going because it has an appetite that will never, ever, ever be appeased. Ever. It's the most destructive disease known to mankind. And it is terminal when it's left unchecked. So what do you look for to know whether or not you are in the early stages or somewhere along the line in that area of selfish pride? Well, James keeps going in verse 2. And I'm going to read, even though it'll take a minute or two here, I'm going to read verses 2 through 5 from the Message Bible. Now, the Message is a great Bible, but if you're doing good Bible study, it's not the one I'd recommend. But I love the way it's put here. It says this. I'm going to start with verse 1. Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way. And you fight for it deep inside yourselves. You lust for what you don't have, and you're willing to kill to get it. You want what isn't yours, and you will risk violence to get your hands on it. You wouldn't think of just asking God for it, would you? And why not? Because you know you'd be asking for what you'd have no right to. You're spoiled children, each wanting your own way. You're cheating on God. And if all you want is your own way, flirting with the world, every chance you get, you end up an enemy of God and His way. And do you suppose God doesn't care? The proverb has it that He's fiercely, a fiercely jealous lover. And what He gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. When you look at those verses in whatever translation you have, and it's the American Standard on the, on the screen, we see he starts out right away with lust. You lust after things. Lust has, in our culture today, a primary connotation in the area of sex. But it goes way beyond sex. We can lust after just about anything. Two different words are used here in verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, in my translation, it was, it was translated pleasures, some desires, and others it does say lust. And in verse 2, mine is translated lust. And it's two slightly different Greek words in each case. The first one used in verse 1 is the word we get our word hedonism from. It talks about the idea of completely 
having a self-centered life. It's all about me. It's all about what I want, what I think I need. It's all about me. That is the hedonistic mentality. It is all about me. Man, I remember seeing, and I haven't seen it recently, but I used to remember seeing a commercial for this vacation paradise on hedonistic island or something like that. I mean, they promote hedonistic lifestyle. You want pleasure? Go there. No holds barred. It's kind of like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Hedonism. And the second word goes a little bit different. It's used and it deals more with the desire. It's kind of more of a state of a being. It's, it's who the person has become because of that lust or that craving. In other words, we've got to have it. I am consumed with the thought, I need that. What do I need? Money? Power? Position? Influence? Sexual gratification? What do I need? What do I want? And it starts to consume me. And that's what he's talking about in verse 2. That kind of lust that consumes us. Anything that we desire and long after more than anything else. God's not very high on our list in that environment. doesn't matter what it is, it's still lust, and it's still destructive. In verse 3, it gets into this, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You ask, you do not receive. Verse 2 says you don't even ask. I mean, sometimes it would be nice if a buzzer would go off in my head when some of the things I'm asking for come out of my mouth because they're not God. I'm asking for what I want. Whatever I'm obsessing about or whatever I'm lusting after. God, if I just win the lottery, I swear I'd give you half. I might even give some to the church. But I'd pay off all my bills and I'd be free. Our, our attitude would be just so goofed up when we lust after these things, we wouldn't think of asking for that. And one way of looking at the Scripture is that way. You don't ask because you know better. The Message Bible gives us that direction. And then it says, and when you do ask, you don't get. I've heard that Scripture used, misused so many times by word, faith, prosperity type teaching. The reason you don't have is because you haven't asked. God, give me that pink Cadillac and a million dollars in the bank. Have you asked for it yet? That's why you don't have it. Pardon my Greek. That's crap. It's not true. That's not how the Scripture is written and that's how it's not to be interpreted. When we pray, when we pray to God, we're not praying to try to convince Him that we're right and He needs to answer it. When we pray to God, one of the primary purposes of prayer is to align my will with God's will. And if I align my will with God's will and I ask, I will receive. I like that a lot better. Because I know if I ask in my own desires, my own lust, my own flesh, and I happen to get it, it isn't going to turn out very good. Because it's not going to be good for me or God would have already given it to me. So we need to 
to be careful in what we ask for. Lust is a first symptom. A second symptom is this whole concept of consumption. Consuming, consuming, consuming. We lust for it. We need it. We have to have it. You know, and you've probably heard this, but the more you feed it, the bigger it gets. The more you feed it, the bigger it gets. What's the best way to cause it to get smaller? That sounds like my diet. Quit feeding it. It'll shrink. This is how it is with our lusts and this whole consuming. Quit feeding it. I mean, how many of you have a favorite sin or have had in the past a favorite sin and you, decide, you just indulge yourself? I mean, I'm just going to keep going and going and going and you finally reach the point where you said, I think I'll quit now. That indulgence is satisfied. It doesn't happen that way. You want more. You want more and you want more. It gets more perverted. More sick. The longer we go, but we can't quit because we still have that lust, that desire, that consumption. The cure for consuming lust is to starve it. Quit feeding it. Easier said than done. We're not good at doing it on our own. But there is something called grace. The grace of God. The grace of God. We'll get to that in a little more detail in just a few minutes. Lust, consumption, a third symptom in verse 4 is friendship with the world. You know, and sometimes I convince myself that when I'm indulging in the world just a little bit, I mean, I'm, I'm just barely across the line. I may even be straddling it a little bit. I'm trying to convince myself that God's just kind of winking. And He's not. He's calling me an adulterer. He's saying, you're choosing that, the things of the world, over me. And He says here very clearly, an adulteress. The world, a friend of the world, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship to the world is hostility towards God? Man, that little line in the sand that's the difference between sin and not sin, I'm becoming his enemy. Hostile towards God. Who wants to live there? Who wants to live in that place of hostility? These other things become our God instead of God being our God. And we're in trouble right away because thou should help no other gods before me. And it's so attractive. The world dresses up again so beautifully, so enticing. The worldliness. And as soon as we get into that snare, we are ensnared and entangled and trapped and it's a tough one to get out of. And envy, the fourth symptom. You know, envy is like jealousy on steroids. There's an extreme jealousy. When we get to that place in our life and we're looking at other things or other people and what they have, 
and I start getting jealous or envious. What am I really saying? I want that. I deserve that. And a sense of entitlement rises up within me. And it doesn't take long for when I have a sense of, you know, put this into a relationship and maybe we can relate to it. If I'm a husband and I have my wife and all of a sudden I feel like I'm entitled to certain things from Cindy and when Cindy doesn't give me those certain things, guess what? That entitlement turns into some ugly stuff really quick. Bitterness, anger, hatred. And when we look and are getting envious and jealous of what other people have, we're saying, I want it, I deserve it, I'm as good as them. No, as a matter of fact, if we reevaluate that, I'm better than them. Therefore, I deserve it. And if I don't get it, I'm bitter. And not only will it oftentimes be directed towards that person we're envious or jealous of, if we're not careful, all of a sudden, it's directed towards God. How can you not give me what I want? You gave it to them, for goodness sakes. And we both know I'm way better than them. Envy. And James is telling us, this is why we have fights. This is why we quarrel. This is why we don't get along. Even amongst believers, who means talking to. That's why we, we fight. We want stuff that's not ours. We want positions or power and authority or things or whatever that's not ours. But he gives us the source of the problem and, and now he's going to start to work in towards giving us the cure. The source of the problem that I've already mentioned. Where does pride come from? Well, when you look at verse 6 of James chapter 4, he says, but God gives us more grace. That's why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Well, there it's obvious right away that it's not from him. Pride is not from him. You know, and it says he opposes the proud. That word opposes in the original language is a military term. And if you could just picture in your mind, there I am, Mr. Pride. And then I look around the hills all the way around me and what I see is an army amassed all the way around me. That's the picture of God opposing the proud. He's not on our side in that issue. He opposes us. He resists us. Remember why Satan fell? Everybody knows why Satan got thrown out of heaven, right? He esteemed himself. He wanted a throne. He didn't want one equal with God. He wanted one better than God. He was going to send above God. After all, he was his beautiful angel, Lucifer. Got kicked out of heaven. Adam and Eve. Why did they get kicked out of the garden? What did Satan tempt them with? You will be like God. I want some of that fruit. Pride. And that pride is in each one of us. Continually looking to rise up and consume us. It's been at the core of every sin since Adam and Eve. So where is the source of sinful pride? It's a sinful heart. Now, can I blame Satan? Well, yeah, I guess. He tempted Adam and Eve, but really it's that, those, that old nature that's in us. Battling. Causing us to, to feel like at times we're being stretched in two directions, don't know where to go. And God says, He resists the proud 
but he gives grace to the humble. And I think part of the problem with this whole humility thing is we oftentimes have such a a distorted idea of what humility looks like. I mean, sometimes we think it's like this. You know, I'm a Christian, therefore I'm going to go down and lay on the sidewalk somewhere and let the whole world walk all over me. It's not what it means at all. To walk in humility, to be a humble person. You know what? It starts with and probably ends with knowing who I am in Christ. Humility. I'm not a floor mat to be walked on and have people clean their garbage off on. I am a child of God, created in the image of the King, the creator of the universe. Seated in heavenly places with him. I have the mind of Christ and I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's who I am. I don't need to rise up in my own defense because God knows who I am. And without him, I can do nothing, but with him, all things are possible. We need to understand who we are. And God says, or James says in verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. What he's doing, he's transitioning from identifying the source of our problem to giving us the solution. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and one judge, the one who is able to save and destroy you, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? James is saying, submit to God. Starts there. It's like pulling the, pulling the plug on whatever is holding back the grace of God in your life. I'm going to humble myself. How do I humble myself? Well, first we need to confess our sins, our wrong attitudes. Confess it is wrong. Confess it is sin. Turn away from the evil things in our life. Turn away. Quit feeding that thing in our life, that besetting sin, that, that temptation that we just have such a hard time saying no to. We need to submit ourselves. We need to spend time in the Word. We need to spend time fellowshipping with other believers. We need to spend time meditating on Scripture. We need to spend time doing these things, spending time in prayer, doing these things as we submit ourselves unto him. Because when we do that, what does that scripture say? He will draw near to us. You know, this would be kind of a harsh response to someone who comes up to you and says, oh, I just wish I felt God was nearer to me than he is. Well, Are you submitting to God? Are you spending time in his word? Are you spending time in fellowship with other believers? Are you spending time in prayer? If you're not, how do you expect to sense his presence? But I can guarantee you, because he says so, you do those things and he will draw near to you. Sometimes we're our own worst enemies. And then he says, resist the devil. You know, the devil is pretty good at what he does, amen? But what he does really is this. He tempts us 
in the areas of our prideful heart. He tempts us in those areas where we are already lusting after something. He doesn't come with some crazy, whacked out idea that we haven't even thought about yet. He comes and tempts us with those things that we're already playing with in our minds. And James is saying, resist the devil. Resist him. Do what God tells us to do. And he has to flee. And humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. It's, it's almost repetitious to the submitting to God. But again, we confess. And you know, he, he uses... Well, I'm going to read it in the Message Bible if I can find it quickly. Verse 9, this way. In the Message. Hit bottom. Cry your eyes out. The fun and games are over. Get serious. I mean really serious. Get out on your knees before the Master. It's the only way that you're going to get back up on your feet. I like that. Sometimes we continue to play games with God. You know, sometimes there's that prayer of confession that really is a prayer of, gee, I'm miserable. I want you to make me feel better. There's a big difference. Sometimes we just need to reach that place of brokenness. We need to see sin like he sees sin and grieve over that sin like he grieves over our sin. And sometimes in the natural we say, you know what, we just have to hit bottom where there's no place else to go, there's nothing else. I come to this realization that I am tapped out and I can't do anything about my situation. And God is our answer. God has this strange economy. When we humble ourselves, He elevates us. To be the greatest, be the least. Makes no sense to the human mind, especially the American human mind. So He lays out clearly that there's these three things that will just crush human pride. Submit to God. And draw near to Him, resist the devil, and humble ourselves. There it is. The only problem with that is it's impossible to do in the natural. You can't accomplish it on your own. I hope most of us have figured that out. We can't accomplish it on our own. We need God. This is the beauty of it all. What God wants us to become He first of all makes it possible by drawing us to himself by his Holy Spirit, leading us and giving us grace to accept salvation in Jesus Christ. And then he says, I got this wonderful plan for you and it's out here and I'm going to give you everything you need to get there all along the way. There's going to be bumps in the roads, there's going to be tests and there's going to be temptations and trials, but I got grace for every single bit of it, all of it. Keep your eye on me, whatever comes, there's grace. Then there's more grace. Then there's more grace. My grace is sufficient in all things. And it's all there for us. It, it's it's so, so nice when someone tells us to go do something or they, they lay the, the vision out there and they clearly define the mission and say, here it is, I'm giving you everything you need to get there and if something goes amiss, just come back to me, I'll give you more, whatever you need. That's the deal God gives us. And if you think about it logically, who would resist that deal? But that tells you it's not logical. It's spiritual. We have a spiritual enemy who wants to 
totally ensnare us in these things. We can't accomplish it on our own, but we can with God's grace. The grace of God. The grace of God. And I know I've said this before, you know, the, the unmerited favor of God, grace, something we don't deserve. But that's really only half the definition. Grace is a power. It's a power. It's a, and God's the source of that power. We, yes, we have unmerited favor, and he gives us this power to overcome, released in us, the grace of God. The grace of God. He will save you and me from our sinful hearts. He will save us from our selfish pride, and he gives us the grace to humble ourselves and submit to him. And the beauty of this thing is this. Grace is offered to everyone. Everyone. It's available to all. And the reason that's true is he gave his only begotten son to die on a cross for us. And when we receive and accept that gift, that sacrifice in my place, in my behalf, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and this grace of God is available to all of us. We are saved by grace through faith, and we can live out our life to our ultimate destiny by grace the same way. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we do rejoice in the reality of grace. God, that there is nothing we can do to impress you. There's nothing we can do to earn your favor that would lead to salvation. And yet, in your grace, you provided Jesus, your son, to die on our behalf. And God, I thank you that we have a destiny, corporately and individually, a destiny in Christ that you will provide all the grace we need to walk it out as we submit ourselves to you and humble ourselves to you and as you draw near to us. Lord, I pray that you would continue by your spirit to grant repentance, that we would be quick to confess those things in our lives. God, that we would tap into that grace when it's time to resist the devil. And that we would submit ourselves in obedience to you and your word. Lord, I thank you that not only will we be blessed, but the kingdom will be advanced. And you'll receive the glory and all the honor for it. And we pray, Lord, that you would let this be in our lives. Lord, I pray now for safety on the roads as we go our different directions. Pray that you would truly be going before us by your spirit. Give us, let, Lord, let us know that there is the grace when there's a divine appointment that's brought across our path. You will give us the grace to share what needs to be shared. You will give us the grace to be your ambassadors. And I pray for those opportunities this week for each one of us. Father, I ask all these things that you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.